It truly is already has, has been mentioned by Brother Roger and others. A blessing that we've been each given this evening. This first day of the week has permitted us not one but two opportunities for many of us to assemble. And we're so thankful to the God of heaven for making that possible. Allowing us to assemble in such a way that all those matters that can be so troubling in the world can at least be at a distance for a little while. As we give thought to a study of the Word of God, we come again tonight to the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. It is the case as we now have come to installment five in this series of lessons on that book of Ezekiel. I hope that as we have each given some consideration to that book, we've been reminded yet again that those statements made in Romans 15.4 seem so appropriate even as we come to a book like this one. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Even though the matters particularly historical surrounding the book of Ezekiel are now long distance a part of the past, it still is the case that the principles, the considerations found in the book are still meaningful, appropriate, and gigantic lessons can in fact be extracted from them. It is the case, in fact, that we already have considered four lessons. The first one was a consideration of Ezekiel himself as a husband, as a prophet, as a captive, and as a priest. As we looked at that lesson, we came to appreciate that it serves as a good springboard to the next one. The first three chapters of the book served as the second lesson, and on that occasion, we noticed God's call of Ezekiel. What was involved in God's commissioning of him as a prophet? In the next lesson, we looked at chapters 4 through 7, and we saw a rather vivid history as Ezekiel began in earnest the work of a prophet. And as he did that, he often portrayed the message of God in a very vivid fashion. You may recall things like a haircut, things like a tile that he constructed with an outline of Jerusalem upon it. And he was to portray a battering of it, reminding them that captivity was coming. The lesson last Sunday, we turned our attention to chapters 8 through 11. And on that occasion, we again saw some rather disturbing messages. Messages, in fact, that highlighted the thought of abominations. And God said, greater abominations than these. And He reminded Ezekiel as to why captivity and destruction were coming. One of the features about the book of Ezekiel that seems to shine through is the fact that Ezekiel greatly loved his people. He pictured them as the very ones who were God's chosen people, which in fact they were. And for that reason, he often had to be reminded by God, these people, Ezekiel, though you love them, they have disobeyed me. In fact, they have engaged in abominable activities, and for that reason, even though I love them, I must judge them, and I must allow them to go to captivity so that they might learn to repent and be the kind of people which they need to be. That was a hard lesson for Ezekiel to learn. Sometimes today that still can be challenging for a parent, be challenging for any of us to appreciate that sometimes punishment is the best thing possible. Tonight as we come to chapters 12 through 15, the next four chapters in the book of Ezekiel, we shall find an additional set of lessons and I'd invite you to begin them with me as we look at the first few verses of Ezekiel chapter 12. The lesson immediately before us might well be described like this. These matters were delivered by God to Ezekiel in the years 591 and 590 B.C. The visions that had been descriptive of the previous four chapters were now over. 
You may remember in those, Ezekiel had been taken in spirit form to the very location of Jerusalem, and there he was told some remarkable things about their abominations. As chapter number 11 ends, that vision ends. We are now back to the fullness of what Ezekiel was experiencing day by day. The first matter before us begins like this, verses 1 and 2 of Ezekiel 12. The word of the Lord also came unto me, saying, Son of man, thou dwellest in the midst of a rebellious house, which have eyes to see and see not. They have ears to hear and hear not, for they are a rebellious house. We notice that God says, These people who are my people, they have eyes to see, they have ears to hear, but sadly, regrettably, they refuse to hear and they refuse to see. It is true that God, over the course of centuries, had sent them prophets like Jeremiah, prophets like Zephaniah, prophets like Micah, and a whole host of others, urging them to realize the error of their way, to turn back to the God that loved them, but they refused to do so. They have ears to hear, but they haven't listened. They have eyes to see, but they have not seen. You may recall Jesus borrowed that thought Himself in Matthew 13 when He was asked about why He taught in parables. And on that occasion, didn't He say almost identical wording? They have ears to hear and eyes to see, but they don't hear and see. Today, it's still true that multitudes can be blinded. They have the Word of God before them, but they don't listen to what it says. They have the Word of God at their disposal, and maybe even they read it, but they don't listen with an attentive heart. God, through Ezekiel, says, These people, these Israelites, these individuals of Judah, I've tried to teach them, and I've tried to reach them, but they have a hard, rebellious heart. For that reason, we come to the next verse, and on that occasion, God uses another means, another rather vivid portrayal of truth. We've seen that many times in the book already. As I mentioned, a haircut, a tile. Well, look at what happens on this occasion. Beginning in verse 3 of Ezekiel 12, we find that God tells Ezekiel a very interesting and almost astonishing commandment. Therefore, thou son of man, prepare thee stuff for removing, and remove by day in their sight, and thou shalt remove from thy place to another place in their sight. It may be they will consider though they be a rebellious house. You can well imagine the scene. Beginning in that verse and continuing for about the next six, God tells Ezekiel to start moving the stuff out of his house, as if he were moving to a different place of abode. Interesting. I wonder how his wife felt about that. You take your stuff, Ezekiel, and you move it out of your house, and you don't just move it outside. God told him to do it in the following way. First of all, at night, you with your hand dig through the wall of your house. You don't take it out the door. You actually dig through the wall of your house and you take your stuff and put it outside. And then when morning comes, in the sight of all the people of Israel, you pick your stuff up and you trudge slow and difficult step after slow and difficult step and you take it to an appointed place. Not only do you do it that way, but you do it blindfolded. You're not allowed to see where you're going. Imagine Ezekiel night after night and day after day taking the stuff out of his house and moving it to a specially appointed and prepared place. This was to be done. 
as you come to the following verse, verse number 7, listen to what Ezekiel said. And I did so as I was commanded. I brought forth my stuff by day as stuff for captivity, and in the even I digged through the wall with mine hand. I brought it forth in the twilight, and I bare it upon my shoulder in their sight. Here we find Ezekiel carrying out this interesting commandment of God. The lesson is rather clear. As the people watched Ezekiel doing this day after day, they were supposed to be inquisitive enough to ask, What are you doing? And Ezekiel, by the power of God, was to say, This is what's going to happen to you if you don't repent. Because there's going to be an enemy nation come, and they're going to overpower Jerusalem. And not only that, you are going to be forced, virtually as blindfolded, to trudge out of this place you love out to a place they're going to force you to go. Ezekiel was supposed to act out before them what captivity was going to be like. As you think about the way that ends, notice verse number 9 with me. Son of man, hath not the house of Israel, the rebellious house, said unto thee, What doest thou? Some of them did ask him what he was doing. Verse 10, Say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, This burden concerneth the prince in, Jer in Jerusalem and all the house of Israel that are among them. You'll notice as all of that was acted out before the people, we now come in verse number 10 to observe that yet another feature of this captivity is portrayed. It is that feature as we come near the bottom of that slide and you'll notice a reference to a special person. It's called in verse 10, the prince in Jerusalem. Remember, Ezekiel was here dealing these matters to those that were in captivity, but he was letting them know that your folks... Your fellow Jews that are still in Jerusalem, they are going to face a captivity shortly coming. And you'll notice the prince in Jerusalem was not exempted. Who is this prince that was being described? Who is this individual that supposedly was reckoned as a prince? As you'll notice at the bottom of that slide, the answer seems clear. In fact, this affords us another opportunity for a rather valiant lesson. The prince in Jerusalem was the king, and his name was Zedekiah. The picture that dwelled in the mind of so many in that day was this one. There were many who felt that even though difficult times had come upon Jerusalem so far, in 606 B.C., some of them had already been taken captivity, like Daniel. In 597, another group had been taken captive, like Ezekiel. But the city itself was at least still standing. The temple itself was at least still standing. And not only that, the person who had been placed on the throne in Jerusalem was a man named Zedekiah, and he was of the lineage of David. He was a descendant of David. And therefore, many felt that here at least someone who is a descendant of David is still reigning. God will not let Jerusalem be destroyed, so they thought. He still loves this people enough and he's made promises such that he will not allow it to be utterly and finally captivated and destroyed. It is in that light that notice the next prophecy that's given by God to Ezekiel. What about Zedekiah? Verse number 12 says, And the prince that is among them shall bear upon his shoulder in the twilight and shall go forth. They shall dig through the wall to carry out thereby. He shall cover his face that he see not the ground with his eyes. At that point, you'll notice it already sounds bleak, but it gets even worse. Verse 13, 
My net also will I spread upon him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babel into the land of the Chaldeans. Yet shall he not see it, though he shall die there. The fact of the matter is God is delivering a rather amazing prophecy. The prophecy again went like this. This king, Zedekiah, currently reigning in Jerusalem, he too is going to be captured. He will be taken by the Chaldeans to the land of Babylon. But oddly enough, the text says he will not see it. And immediately our mind wonders, how can this be? He'll be taken to a place alive but yet not see it. As you and I ask about the history, it did come to pass exactly as God said it. At the top of that slide, may I refer you to Jeremiah chapter 52. Five years from the time Ezekiel wrote this, in 586 B.C., the Babylonian armies came one more time to Jerusalem. And when they came, Zedekiah was reigning on the throne, but in the reality of the great force coming against him, he tried to escape. He dug through the wall of Jerusalem, thinking maybe he escaped. However, the Babylonian forces saw him, and they finally captured him. And upon capturing him, they did the following to him. They also captured his children, his sons, and the Babylonians put every one of them to death while he was watching. While dad was watching, they killed all of his boys. And then after killing him, they gouged out his eyes, both of them, and then led him off to Babylon. God was right all along. He was taken to Babylon, but he never saw it. And he died in Babylon, just as God said that he would. What a prophecy. As you give thought to then the unfolding of these matters concerning Zedekiah, you'll notice that leads us to yet God's element of promise, at least for a few. There was to be a remnant that would remain. And you'll notice God says in verses 15 and 16 that not all of them would be killed. Some will remain, though they'll be taken captive. And from them I will again make of a great nation. It is with that in mind we arrive at verses 17 and following, again in Ezekiel chapter 12. Amazingly, we find yet another open illustration. Ezekiel, verse number 18, Son of man, eat thy bread with quaking and drink thy water with trembling and with carefulness. You can just picture it, can't you? Here God tells Ezekiel, as you drink your water, you drink it with a trembling hand. Probably not much of it made it to his mouth. Ezekiel, as you eat bread, again, you eat it with a trembling hand as an object lesson of what's going to happen to you, the duress, the difficulty that's going to come when you're in captivity. As you give thought to, again, that object lesson, verse number 19 says, And say unto the people of the land, Thus saith the Lord God of the inhabitants of Jerusalem and of the land of Israel, They shall eat their bread with carefulness and drink their water with astonishment that their land may be desolate from all that is therein because of the violence of all them that dwell. Ezekiel did all these things in public. You may be able to imagine as this picture attempts to portray a man eating in a public place with a purposeful trembling of his hand to where it again looked very awkward and very strange. This was to be another lesson about the difficulties coming their way. In rapid fashion, chapter number 12 closes in verses 21 and following. And it does so by again observing the people of that day and time were very quick to make note of a proverb. The proverb went like this, verse 22. 
the days are prolonged and every vision faileth. You can just hear the people. Many of them were of a mindset. We have heard Jeremiah for 30 years now and what he predicted has not yet happened. We've heard Micah a hundred years ago and what he predicted has not yet happened. We've heard Zephaniah and others who have prophesied so long and it hasn't yet occurred. And so the people were saying, this man Ezekiel, he's just talking this way. It isn't really going to happen. God closes this chapter by saying, all of this time I've been patient and I've been long-suffering. I've sent my prophets in hopes that this people would repent and turn to me. But Ezekiel, now I need you to tell them that my patience is just about up. At this point, notice verse number 23 in the powerful words of God. Tell them therefore, thus saith the Lord God, I will make this proverb to cease. And they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel, but say unto them, the days are at hand and the effect of every vision. All those things that Jeremiah prophesied, guess what? They're now about to happen. And all those things that Micah and Zephaniah and the others had declared, they're now about to occur. God through Ezekiel says this proverb that these foolish people have stated, they're not going to be stating it much more. And with that, the curtain rapidly closes on chapter number 12. The vision is about to come to pass. The terrible horror that's to be Jerusalem's fate is now just about a reality. On into chapter 13 we go. In chapter 13, God now turns His attention as well as that of Ezekiel, as well as that of the people to a powerful reflection of a class of people who at least were partly at fault for the difficulties surrounding Jerusalem. You'll notice it begins like this in verses 1 and 2, Ezekiel 13. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel that prophesy, and say unto them that prophesy out of their own hearts, Hear ye the word of the Lord. And immediately our mind is riveted on these that prophesy out of their own heart. They claimed to have a word from the Lord, but they had no such word. They claimed to have a vision and a revelation from God, but notice what God says. Verse 6, They have seen vanity and lying divination, saying, The Lord saith. These prophets, you see, claim that God was speaking through them, but the verse ends like this, And the Lord hath not sent them, and they have made others to hope that they would confirm the word. Have ye not seen a vain vision, and have ye not spoken a lying divination? Whereas ye say, The Lord saith it, albeit I have not spoken. There were many prophets running around ancient Judah, claiming that they were from the Lord, claiming that God had sent them claiming that all ultimately was going to be just fine. When in fact, God says, I never sent them. I don't know anything about what these folks are saying. You'll notice the language as we find here, it's presented in such a remarkable fashion, not unlike what you see at the top of that slide. These who claim to have visions from the Lord, these who claim to have divinations from God, and yet God says, I never sent them. It's not a word from me. Amazingly enough, you notice then that this statement in verse 8 is made. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Because ye have spoken vanity and seen lies, therefore behold, I am against you, saith the Lord God. 
these false prophets then that were misleading the people. These false prophets that were saying what they wanted to hear rather than what God had delivered them for them to hear. Their description in verse number 9 then reads like this, and it is a rather troubling thing in some ways as you listen to the power of it. And mine hand shall be upon the prophets that see vanity and that divine lies. They shall not be in the assembly of my people, neither shall they be written in the writing of the house of Israel. Neither shall they enter into the land of Israel, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. You'll notice amongst the other punishments accorded to these false prophets, their genealogy will not be recorded in ancient Israel. You and I know how significant the genealogies were. It was important to know who begat who, who begat who, and so forth. These false prophets will be so detested, so despised, that they will not even be recorded in the annals of ancient Israel. After Jerusalem fell in 586, all the words of these prophets then bore full evidence that they were false because what they prophesied didn't come to pass. Shockingly, you notice then in verse number 10, we hear some of the statements these false prophets were making. Because even because they have seduced my people, saying peace and there was no peace, and one built up a wall, and lo, others daubed it with untempered mortar. That has to be one of the most interesting comparisons of this point in the book of Ezekiel. We've seen so many things, but notice here we have false prophets likened unto untempered mortar. We could ask Greg and other construction individuals, how wise is it to use untempered mortar in a construction project? How wise is it to use mortar that's not properly prepared? Well, let's see how that came to have a tremendous impact in this instance. Verse number 11. Say unto them which daub it with untempered mortar, that it shall fall. There shall be an, an overflowing shower, and ye, O great hailstone, shall fall, and a stormy wind shall rend it. Lo, when the wall is fallen, shall it not be said unto you, Where is the daubing wherewith ye daubed it? picture after five years have passed. All that Ezekiel has said has come to pass. The wall in Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple's been burned and ransacked. The people have been hauled off to captivity. And then the question is asked, well, what about all those prophets that said this would never happen? And what about all those individuals who assured us on all the power of their word that this could not occur? Jeremiah, rather Ezekiel said, that those false prophets are just like a wall built with untempered mortar. It's going to fall flat and there's nothing going to be able to withstand the fury when it's blown against it. False prophets to this day are still like untempered mortar, aren't they? They speak much, but there's no strength in what they say. There's no eternal lasting blessing in what is revealed and that which they proclaim. That's exactly what's presented here. These false prophets said exactly what the people wanted to hear. Oh, you're not going into captivity. Even if you do, God won't let it last long. He has His eye on Jerusalem. He'll take care of it. Untempered mortar is what it was. A summary statement in verse 16 reads like this. To wit, the prophets of Israel, which prophesy concerning Jerusalem, and which see visions of peace for her, and there is no peace, saith the Lord God. These prophets prophesied of peace, but there was none. It reminds us a little bit about Isaiah. Over a hundred years before, 
who in Isaiah 57, verses 20 and 21, he himself had said, But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot, wake, when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. No peace to the wicked in Jerusalem. This untempered mortar led them to believe that there was. Might I invite you to notice a little word that we passed over in verse 10. One of the things that these false prophets had done was they seduced God's people. There were people earnest enough and honest enough to follow the truth had they heard it. But these false prophets seduced them, led them to believe a lie, and therefore they were doomed. That's described in verses 17 and following. Here we find that others were participating in these false prophet ideas. And it was not only the men, it was the women. Verse number 17, God turns His attention to the women that were prophesying falsely. Likewise, thou son of man, set thy face against the daughters of my people, which prophesy out of their own heart, and prophesy thou against them. There were ladies, women, if you please, in Jerusalem, who also were prophesying. They were making statements every bit as bad as the false prophets' men were. They were claiming that God wasn't going to let these things happen. And in fact, they even made a public spectacle, as is described in verse 18. Thus, thus saith the Lord God, Woe to the women that sow pillows to all armholes, and make kerchiefs upon the head of every stature to hunt souls. It would appear to me that's a very graphic description Here's the best of which I'm able to make piecing other portions of Ezekiel together with it. These women were given to magical arts. They were given to pursuing things that often would be like today. You and I would see a person reading tarot cards. And you'll notice specifically that mention is made of sewing pillows to all armholes. In fact, the Hebrew word for pillow is not quite what you see there. It's as if they were sewing bands around the wrists of people. You and I maybe have seen individuals and they wear a wristband that identifies that they're associated with some particular cultic activity. That's much like what was happening here apparently. They were in fact making bands, encouraging people to wear them, and you notice the language was very strong. It says they were hunting souls. They were converting people over to their magical way of arts and insisting that they follow it. And as such, in part, they were proclaiming the safety of Jerusalem, the safety of the temple and other matters there. And God says, I'm against these female prophets as well. And you'll notice among the other things they did, in verse number 19 it says, that they in fact brought to slay the souls that should not die and to save the souls alive that should not live. These women so deluded, seduced, and deceived people that those who really should have died, they were saving them. And by the way, those who in fact ought to have been saved were being killed by what these people were teaching. Today, remember, false prophets still work much like that, don't they? They deceive, they seduce, they mislead, they take the Word of God and pervert it, and thus they bring to death those that otherwise ought to live. What a shame. Perhaps finally, as that chapter closes, in verse 23, God says, Therefore ye shall see no more vanity nor divine divinations, for I will deliver my people out of their hand, 
and you shall know that I am the Lord. Throughout this chapter, God three times has said, They shall know that I am the Lord. There were three paragraphs in chapter 13, and every one of them ended with those words. The people had forgotten that the Lord God of heaven ruleth and reigns from the majesty of His palace. And it's a sad thing when men forget that. As we open chapter number 14, we come to yet another description. Stern, direct, and oh so strong. One of the highlights of this chapter will be the very title I've given to the lesson tonight. And we'll reach that as we get to the proper verse in just a moment. But to build up to it, we begin in verse number 1 in the following fashion and in the following way. You might appreciate that as you look at these false prophets, we've just highlighted some of the features of that particular slide, looking at the nature of what those false prophets brought, the misleading character associated with their work. One picture I thought that would fairly strive to describe that which we see there is this one. I thought it rather dramatically portrayed a fallen wall. It does, doesn't it? That's what untempered mortar will do. Mortar that's soft, mortar that doesn't have the right ingredients, and so it's weak, it will lead to a wall that falls, will it not? That's what a false prophet does. He leads to lives that are weak, for they aren't founded on the truth of the Word of God. They're founded on a lie. They're founded on what men have thought and what others have asserted, but not what God has said. That part hasn't changed in the slightest, has it? Though false prophets can often sound so eloquent and often sound so well-meaning and powerful and often so sincere. No doubt, a builder might be sincere, but if he uses untempered mortar, there's no safety in what he constructs. There's no strength in what he builds. That, my friend, is still the same, isn't it? May you and I never fall prey to untempered mortar, but may we spiritually always give thought to the strong mortar that God has prepared. Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John 8, 32. Didn't the Lord say in John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Remarkably, as we close that thought, with the chastisement delivered relative to these false teachers, no wonder God turns His attention to Israel as a whole, and specifically does so, making mention of idols, making mention of judgment, and one more rather fascinating parable. First, let's deal with the idols. You'll notice at the top, there were some individuals that came to Ezekiel. Not just any people, these were the elders of Israel. So they too were in captivity with him, and they came and sat before Ezekiel, if you please, with an ear to listen to instruction, with an ear to listen to encouragement. But when they came... It's shocking what God through Ezekiel says to them. I'd invite you to listen as I read. Verse number 1, or beginning in verse 1 of chapter 14. Then came certain of the elders of Israel unto me, and said unto me, or rather, and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their heart, and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired of at all by them? These gentlemen that were coming before Ezekiel, they gave the pretense of being religious. They gave the impression of being interested in spiritual things. They came to Ezekiel and said, Teach us and tell us 
instruct us and give us the Word of God. However, God revealed to Ezekiel, these men have got idols in their hearts. These men are not what they appear to be. These men are hypocrites. They have idols set up, not in a public display. You'll never see them going and bowing down before an idol. But in the secrecy of their house, in the private inner recesses of their heart, these gentlemen are idolaters. Verse number 4 then says, Therefore speak unto them and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Every man of the house of Israel that setteth up his idols in his heart and putteth a stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and cometh to the prophet, I the Lord will answer him that cometh according to the multitude of his idols, that I may take the house of Israel in their own heart, because they are all estranged from me through their idols." We learn something interesting as if we hadn't earlier appreciated it. It's possible to give the appearance of serving God in public, but in private our heart could be far from Him. Isn't that what their situation was? They had no earnest and sincere and honest devotion to the Lord. They came to Ezekiel because they thought that's what they were supposed to do. There still are those today who they'll come to a worship service, but their heart's not in it. They may attend a Bible study, but their heart is somewhere else. They may even involve themselves in a program of the church every now and then, but their heart's not in it. God says, I know exactly what's in their heart, and even though they may fool the people, they cannot fool me. Isn't that a great reminder for all of us? We may fool the hapless public, but we'll never be able to fool the God of heaven. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, reach Proverbs 15.3. Didn't the Hebrew writer say in Hebrews 4.13, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Here Ezekiel's learning again the lesson that what appears to him to be the case was not the truth. These elders also needed to repent because they were idolaters. You'll notice the lessons continue in verse number 6, beginning in that verse. You'll notice he says, Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, Repent, and turn yourselves from, all, from your idols, and turn away your faces from all your abominations. It would appear that although these elders were with Ezekiel in captivity, if they had been in Jerusalem, they would have been the first ones in line to be guilty in some form of idolatry. They just happened now to be far removed from where they could engage in it. But he says, I know what's in their heart. They still love the idols and they still love what they stand for. But I know exactly how wrong that is. And God says, every one of my prophets need to tell them to the face that they need to repent and they need to turn to the Lord. Those sound like almost the verbatim words that Peter preached in Acts 3.19, doesn't it? When there on Solomon's porch with perhaps fifteen to 20,000 people gathered, we may hope. Archaeologists tell us that's how many could have fit on that porch. And I hope enough of them were there that day to hear Peter say, Repent and turn to the Lord. Because that's what they all needed to do, wasn't it? Isn't it amazing as you come to the verses that follow? That brings us then to the statement in verse number 9. And if the prophet be deceived when he has spoken a thing, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand upon him and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. 
That's one of those ways in which God says, I let every man make his own decision. If he chooses to deceive the people, that's his choice. He has access to the truth, and that deception will lead to his own destruction. You'll notice so far we have discussed a bit about idols, and at least a part about the judgment, but yet judgment is even more notably coming next, as well as a very interesting parable. Beginning in verse number 12. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, when the land sinneth against me by trespassing grievously, then will I stretch out mine hand upon it, and will break the staff of the bread thereof, and will send famine upon it, and will cut off man and beast from it. Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. We notice an amazing reference. In fact, if you were to commit any part of verse 14 to memory, I'd suggest it be verse number 14. Here we have a monumental statement. I'd invite you to consider it with me at least for the next few moments. The issues surrounding these three gentlemen, Noah, Daniel, and Job. As we build the following characteristics, notice what is said. If these three men were in Jerusalem, even they would not be able to save anybody but themselves. What a statement about the stubbornness, the obstinacy, and the hard-heartedness of the people of Jerusalem. First of all, what about Noah? What a great man of faith from Genesis chapter 6 through 8. A man who in the midst of a world so given to wickedness and iniquity, God told him to build an ark and he did it. And even though he was a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2, 5, and even though he preached for well over a hundred years, still he was only able to say eight souls, including himself. You'll notice that there still are those today that claim there never was really a man named Noah. That's just a powerful story God told a long time ago to urge people to obey Him. But it's figurative. May I say that makes no sense in light of Ezekiel 14, 14. There were real people living in Babylonian captivity and real people living in Jerusalem. And if God were using some fictitious character, then the whole point of the story is lost. The whole point of the message is lost. What about the next one, Daniel? Daniel was a contemporary of Ezekiel. Whereas Ezekiel was in Babylonian captivity, Daniel was in Persian captivity, serving in the throne room of Persia. As you and I know from studying the book of Daniel, what a pristine character he was. We notice there still are some that call Daniel's real existence into question, but again, if he wasn't a real person, the whole point of what Ezekiel said is lost. There was a young man named Daniel, and he was one who suffered all that the book of Daniel points out. He, in fact, was thrown into the lion's den, just as the book tells us in chapter 6. Finally, what about the last one? Job. Now, Job lived many, many years prior to the days of Ezekiel. In fact, as nearly as we may be able to tell, he likely lived well over 1,500 years prior to the days of Ezekiel. We're talking a millennium and a half. And yet, Ezekiel knew him well. Knew well of the person of him. And yet, there's still those today who claim that there was no Job, that there was no man that was the patriarch of the land of Uz, that there was no man that endured what that book sets, that sets before us. 
Remember, he lost his children, lost so many of his possessions, his camels, his cattle, his sheep, his oxen. Houses fell on his kids. His wife told him to curse God and die, Job 2.9. There was a man named Job, and he did live just as the book of Job proclaims. Though there be three in it, Noah, Daniel, and Job, even they could only save themselves. That's a terrible statement about the people of Jerusalem, isn't it? How hard-hearted they were. May I say to you, the last thoughts then of this chapter, beginning in verse number 17, bring us to appreciate the following. Four sore judgments brought upon this people. And they are listed as follows. Verse 19, If I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my fury upon it to blood and cut off man from beast. Notice Noah, Daniel, and Job listed again in verse 20. Then in verse 21, how much sore when I send my four sore judgments upon Jerusalem. And here they are. The sword, the famine, the beast, and the pestilence. And all four of them were about to come on Jerusalem. What a notable lesson. And with that, but one issue remains. I would invite you to notice the picture. A picture of Noah, Daniel, and Job. A very noteworthy picture, it seems to me, highlighting the special way in which they are so high in God's hall of fame, so special in terms of their presentation of faithfulness. It is true that with Noah, Daniel, and Job, we come to this parable. I chose to put the picture first this time. It is a picture, as you can well tell, of a barren fruit tree. I wonder what the parable suggests. Chapter 15 closes our study tonight with a barren fig tree. Chapter 15 is only eight verses. It could be read so swiftly, but I'll just choose to highlight and then the lesson will be yours. The thought is this. Imagine how disappointing it would be to have a vineyard or an orchard and you have an expectation of fruit on a tree and you come and look for it and find none. You'd be disheartened. You'd be disappointed. You perhaps would be distraught. Well, notice in chapter 15, that's exactly what happened to God. As you come to this concluding thought, I'll highlight that as a way to close our lesson and offer the invitation. In chapter 15, we have the following beautiful parable. It's a parable of a fig tree, or rather I should say an olive tree. This olive tree, as it's presented, God describes it in these words. Verse 2, what is the vine tree? more than any tree or that a branch which is among the trees of the forest. The point was this. Of all the different kinds of trees and all the different kinds of wood that existed in that Middle Eastern part of the world, the olive tree, the vine tree, if you please, was a very special one. And its purpose was not for carpentry. You didn't use the wood of an olive tree to build furniture because an olive tree had a far more special purpose its fruit was far more valuable. That olive out of which you could make oil and that olive out of which you could provide for your family by selling it and by even consuming it yourself, it was far more valuable that way than to make furniture or something else out of it. God uses that idea to challenge His own people. Consider Judah. They are my prized possession. They're far more valuable to me than any furniture. And they should have been dedicated to me and devoted to me. And they should have borne fruit to me. 
and yet I come and it's barren. They've been given to idolatry. They've been given to sinful, iniquity kind of life. They've been given to everything, it seems, except what they ought to have been. And so now I'm going to destroy the tree. I'm going to cast it into the fire. I'm not even going to make furniture out of it. For the wood's not fit for that. I'm going to destroy it entirely. And with that, what a sore end would come to Jerusalem. Five years from the time Ezekiel pointed these things out, Ezekiel, or rather Jerusalem, was in ruins. All that had been foretold came to pass. Our lessons tonight have been summarized like that. We've seen everything from untempered mortar to fruitless olive trees, and every bit of it has been memorable, and every bit of it has been challenging, and it's also been challenging to all of us. What about you or I? Have you and I been given to untempered mortar? Have you and I been given to being fruitless? Jesus himself said in John 15, 8, Except we bear fruit unto God, we are not pleasing to him. In Romans, we also find in chapter 7, verse 4, that you and I have been married to Christ in order that we may bear much fruit to him. Are you and I bearing fruit to him? If not, why not make things right this very night? The plan of salvation demands that you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the Messiah, and be baptized. If you haven't attended to that, why not do it tonight? If you have but have been unfaithful, why not return to your first love? In Revelation 2.5, that was commanded, and it's commanded of you. We notice that just as judgment was coming to these people, it's also coming to all of us. Are you ready for it? I pray that we each shall be and continue to make that preparation. But if tonight you've been given to untempered mortar or you've been given to being fruitless, why not come to your Savior? Come to the Lord and let Him make it right in your life. If we could help you tonight, why not let it be known while together we stand and sing the chosen song?